Good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Good. Good to see you guys. Um, Christmas is a busy time, so we, we have, there's tons of things going on, tons of uh, announcements, so um, I, I know Pastor Jim um, gave us a couple in the beginning, but I do want to share a couple more with you guys um, really quickly before we dive in today. Um, number one, how many of you guys were here last Christmas and you enjoyed watching um, Leo lead the bell choir? Do you guys remember that? A lot of you guys did. So um, we're going to bring the bell choir back on Christmas Eve to do an opening number, and um, if you'd like to be a part of that, they're going to be having a practice immediately following service today. Is that correct, Leo? For an hour after service today, and then again on Christmas Eve before the service, they'll have a second practice. Uh, kids are welcome to be a part of the bell choir. Teens are welcome to be a, a part of the bell choir and adults. Um, so if you'd like to do that, just stick around immediately following service. Just stay in here, and you can be a part of the bell choir. Um, and that's going to be the opening number, and then we'll dismiss the kids to their Christmas party on Christmas Eve after that number. Um, the blessing tree. For many of you guys, you know we've had that Christmas tree out in the foyer, and we have been working to um, bless some kids from the Salvation Army's uh, Christmas program and also uh, our daycare families, our teachers um, in the daycare. And I am happy to announce today that everybody has been taken off the tree, so we can celebrate that. But there is one other big way that you can help with the blessing tree. Um, one of the, the things we really wanted to also do this year is we wanted to send like a love basket to the South Portland Police Department um, just to thank them. And you guys maybe don't know all the things, but um, they've been wonderful with us and they've had just a wonderful relationship with us over the years. They had to do their SWAT training and they used our building to run around and practice and do that. Um, about a year ago, we had a, um, someone who came and vandalized the church in the middle of the night, and they came and dealt with that whole situation and was, you know, really have really been wonderful. And so we would love to bless them. So if you're able to, we would love it if all of you guys grabbed some gift cards, maybe to Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks or even Walmart. Just, it doesn't have to be large amounts, $5, $10, and just bring them into the church office. We're going to put a basket of goodies together and fill it with gift cards, and we would love on Christmas Eve to be able to deliver that over to the police station and just to thank them. And, and just to bless them. So if you could help us with that, that would be awesome. And then I want to remind you guys, speaking of giving, that this is the last three weeks of 2022. So the last chance to get in your final giving for this tax year. And also, if you signed up for the I Love My Church offering, if you guys remember that, we did the I Love My Church offering for several weeks about putting the new roof on the sanctuary, which is going to be happening in the spring and working on redoing the lighting in here. We asked for those pledge commitments to try to be fulfilled by the end of the year. So I want to encourage you to please make sure. I think um, so far we have raised $44,000 has come in, which is awesome. We had that, so let's applaud that. We had $52,000 pledged, so we have about $8,000 still in the next couple weeks to come in would be awesome. And I want to give you one other really exciting piece of news that we found out this week. We just announced it at board meeting on Monday. But the pastoral staff team um, found out about a, a grant application for churches, and we applied to the um, Oldham Church Project um, as a grant while that, um, that um, um, I Love My Church campaign was going on. We found out this week that our church was accepted into that grant, and we are going to be receiving enough money in that grant to complete the roof and the lighting project. So that is a big blessing from God. 
So I want to thank all of you guys for your faithfulness, and we need to give glory to God because God helped us to be able to achieve that goal of $60,000 to be able to get everything done. So praise God for that. Today we're in part four of our Christmas series called The Christmas Tree, um, where we've kind of been, you know, talking about the season of Advent. And we've also been examining the really odd and, and quite frankly, uh, kind of messed up characters in the family tree of Jesus. And, and as we said last week, a fascinating thing about the Bible and the Christmas story in particular is there are these four distinct accounts in Scripture about the life of Jesus. Four ancient manuscripts about Jesus from four completely different eyewitness perspectives. And while they certainly talk about many, many similar things, they are not completely identical because they're coming from from different people and their viewpoints. And these accounts begin this portion of our Bible known as the New Testament. They are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And another interesting thing with regards to Christmas and the Advent season is that two of these accounts don't really say anything about the birth of Jesus. Mark and John start off with the ministry of John the Baptist, which occurred about 30 years after Jesus was born. However, Matthew and Luke both talk about the birth of Jesus. And Luke begins with with the very traditional Christmas story that we all kind of know with an angel and Mary and all that cool stuff. We're going to hear about that on Christmas morning with the reading of the Christmas story. We're going to do that and take communion on Christmas morning. But Matthew, as we discovered last week, begins the Christmas story not with a story. No angel, no shepherds, no wise men, no. He begins with a genealogy, an account of the family tree of Jesus, the Christmas tree, if you will. And Matthew begins by going way back to Father Abraham and then tracing the lineage of Jesus. Now, I believe he had a couple reasons for going about this and doing this. Number one, he needed to convince Jewish people that Jesus was like really, really, really Jewish, like legendary Jewish enough that he was the potential Messiah. And for that to be the case, you had to be related to two key figures who were part of Messianic prophecy. You had to be related to Father Abraham and King David. Because if you were going to be a Messiah, the Messiah in, in prophecy in the Old Testament was told to be related to Father Abraham and King David. Because God promised Father Abraham that one day he would have a descendant that would bless the entire world. And that David would one day have a descendant who would rule forever. And so if there was ever going to be a physical literal Messiah, that person had to be related to Father Abraham and King David. And every good Jewish person at the time understood that. So Matthew, knowing his audience and being Jewish himself, he decided, well, let's start off by answering this really big question first. Who is Jesus ultimately related to? And so Matthew begins the Christmas story with a genealogy. But as we discovered last week, he doesn't really seem to stay on script, does he? He goes off on these off-ramps, on these detours. And it even looks like he goes a little bit out of his way to highlight 
all of the crazy people who were related to Jesus. People we would have skipped over if we were writing a genealogy about Jesus and trying to make him look good. He includes several women in a male-dominated patriarchal society and culture where you would only write men. He includes four women, and he includes some who weren't even Jewish. And he reveals to us through that, as we talked about last week, that Jesus was a mutt, that he wasn't a pure-blood Jewish person. And then Matthew throws in a couple people that had terrible reputations in Jewish history. He pauses on the story of David and Bathsheba, which we'll cover a little bit on Christmas Eve, as if anyone needed to be reminded of King David's greatest sin in life, right? When he abused his power as king and he used it to murder a man and steal his wife. It's like Matthew went out of his way to emphasize the fact that in Jesus' family tree were some really shady, sinful, jacked-up people. Now, why would he do that? Why in the world would Matthew do that? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. One, because it's the truth, and they're a part of the genealogy. They're a part of that story. But also, I think it's because he believed that they were a part of the Christmas story. Matthew was about to unpack the story of the life and death and and resurrection of Jesus. And, And as a person who had kind of a bad past himself, he wanted his audience to understand the nature and the message of Jesus. And here's what the message was, that up until that time, in every religious system basically in the world, including Judaism, people's approach to God always kind of came down to this. It always kind of summed down to this, that one standing with God was basically based on what you've done or haven't done in life. That's where your standing was based with God. And so consequently, there were some self-righteous people who felt like they were very religious and they followed all the rules when it came to God, and they felt like they could get God to answer their prayers because, you know, they did good things and they were good people. And so good things should happen to them simply based on the fact, here I am, look at me, God, I'm a good person. And as we said last week, that way of thinking is called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. That my personal righteousness, that my personal goodness is enough to get God's attention, if there is a God, and get me into heaven. And this was the thinking of many religious people at that time. And Matthew had had grown up around that. I mean, that was the culture he had experienced. But Matthew also understood, as we learned last week, that under this way of thinking, as a former tax collector and sinner, that he was never going to make the cut with God. And so Matthew understood that on the flip side of this self-righteous kind of way of thinking that I'm a good person, there were a lot of other people in the world who were like Matthew, who felt like they didn't have any righteousness, that, you know, they actually kind of secretly hoped that there wasn't a God, because if there was a God and he judged based on how good you were, they were toast, because they had done things in their past that they were so ashamed of and that they felt judged by, and they felt condemned by. And again, that was Matthew's story. 
But Matthew also understood that the story and the teaching of Jesus was introducing a brand new way of thinking about God and looking at God. Matthew understood that Jesus taught something very, very different from what the world was teaching at the time. Jesus taught that all people had access to God, not based on what they had or hadn't done, but based on what God had done on their behalf. And this was a brand new way of thinking. This was a completely radical and different approach to looking at God. And when Matthew writes his gospel, when he writes his account of Jesus, it's as if he attempts to demonstrate that, yes, Jesus was related to King David, and yes, Jesus was related to Father Abraham, but he also went out of his way to make sure his audience knew that Jesus was also related to sinners, and not just any sinners. I mean, people who could win awards for their sin kind of sinners, okay? So, so maybe with a grin on his face and with a gleam in his eye, Matthew wrote out the genealogy of Jesus, and he began to underscore all of these shady, jacked-up characters in the Christmas tree of Jesus to remind us that Jesus didn't just come for sinners, but that Jesus also came from sinners. And this is how Matthew begins the Christmas story. He, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, picking up in Matthew 1, verse 2, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, before we dive in today, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to turn to a person sitting next to you and just look at them for a second. Awesome, awesome. Now turn to the person on the other side of you who you didn't like as much because you picked one over the other. So look, look at that person now. Great. All right, now I just want you to pick one of those people, all right? And I want you to tell them everything you know about Judah. Go. I'll wait. Some of you are like, I'm already done, Pastor. Is that a person or a place? I'm not really... Not really quite sure. Probably a very short conversation, right? Probably a pretty short conversation. But if you were raised in church, if you were raised in church and I asked you to tell somebody next to you everything you knew about one of Judah's brothers named Joseph, well, you might be able to have a conversation for at least a couple minutes. I mean, if you like musicals, you might start singing about a coat that was red and yellow and green and brown and blue, right? Because Judah's brother Joseph is really, really famous. I mean, most people know something, even if they didn't grow up in church, most people know something about the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and being sold into slavery by his brothers and going to Potiphar's house and winding up in Pharaoh's prison and then interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and eventually becoming the second in command of all of Egypt. But not very many people know the story of his big brother, Judah. And yet, as we read Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Joseph isn't mentioned. Instead, it's Judah. And if you know the story of Joseph, and if you compare it to the story of Judah that, that I'm about to tell you, and if you were God, and you could choose one of these two guys 
through which your son would eventually come through their lineage into the world, my hunch is you would have skipped over Judah in a heartbeat and you would have chosen Joseph. Because everything about Joseph's story, if you read the Bible, is remarkable. Joseph was a man of character and faith. I mean, he's persecuted and he's punished unjustly in so many cruel ways. And then at the end, he still forgives everybody who's wronged him. And he becomes, get this, he becomes the savior. He saves his family. He saves Pharaoh. He saves all of freaking Egypt. Joseph is the perfect Old Testament foreshadowing of Jesus. If there was ever a boy to pick that would become the person through whose family tree the Messiah would come, Joseph was absolutely perfect. I mean, there are so many parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. It's freaky if you read the Bible, the comparisons between the two. And yet God looks down and he says, hmm, I think I'm going to pick the jacked up one. I think I'm going to pick Judah. And we would have never done that. You would have never done that. I would have never done that. Why? Because Judah's jacked up and creepy, as we're about to see in a minute. But again, that's the point of Matthew's gospel. That's the point of the Christmas story. So you guys ready to dive in today, the Judah story? All right, if you've never heard it before, it's not really talked about that often in church. Let's dive into Judah's story. The story of Judah actually begins in Genesis 37, which you might be a little familiar with. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, you can do that. Judah's story is just kind of like a footnote in the story of his famous younger brother, Joseph. But here's how the story begins. Judah and the other brothers are really jealous of Joseph because Joseph is kind of the favorite son of the father. I mean, their father, Jacob, even has this beautiful coat of many colors that he gives to Joseph. And so one day, he sends Joseph out to find his brothers out in the field. And Joseph goes out to see his brothers. And he's kind of a little bit of a bragger. He shares about these dreams that God has been giving him, where kind of they're bowing down to him and things like that. And, and they just really don't like him. He is like the perfect child, the, the, the favorite child. And so Judah and his brothers come up with a plan. Genesis 37, picking up in verse 23, here's what it says. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern, which is like a deep well. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And in my notes, I wrote, say what? I mean, they take their younger brother, they strip him naked, they beat him down, they throw him into an empty well, and then they're like, let's take a lunch break. And they sit down for lunch. You guys hear that voice? That's just... Joseph moaning in the well, throw him a chicken bone. Shut up, Joseph, we're thinking here, we're having lunch. And they sit down, they eat their lunch, and they start figuring out what their next move is going to be. Picking up in verse 25. As they sit down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their, their camels were loaded up with, with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So here comes these traders, and they're coming along with all this stuff that they're taking off to Egypt to be able to sell. And that's where we're introduced 
to Judah. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother? Cover up his blood. Judah's like, guys, I've been thinking, if we just kill him, what do we get from that? We don't gain anything. I think we should sell him. Because if we sell him, we get rid of him, and we make some cash at the same time. And apparently, Judah's kind of the ringleader of his brothers. He's not the oldest, but he's the influencer. He's the leader. Verse 27. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, I mean, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. I want to introduce you, church, to Judah, from whom our Savior, Jesus, comes. Judah, who says, let's not kill him. Let's profit from his pain. So they sell Joseph, and the Ishmaelites chain him up, and they march him off with the other slaves to Egypt. And from Judah's perspective, that is the last he's ever going to see of his perfect little brother again as he splits up the cash amongst the other brothers. And then Judah takes this fancy coat of many colors and he dips it in some goat blood. And then these brothers do the unthinkable. They go back home to their parents and they proceed to break their parents' hearts. And they say, we found this. I guess an animal killed Joseph. Your perfect favorite son is dead. All we could find was a bloody robe. This is all that's left of the family favorite. And the brothers choose to live with this secret. They make a pact to live with it for the rest of their lives. And eventually, all the money they made eventually is gone. But the memory of the guilt is not. In fact, over the next 20 years, every time they gather together for a meal with their father, there's an empty chair sitting at the table. Every year on Joseph's birthday, their father would break down and sob. And Judah knows the truth, but he never cracks. He never confesses, even though he knows in his heart of hearts that he's responsible for what happened to his brother Joseph because he was the ringleader. He was the influencer. He was the one who could have saved Joseph. Now, if you read through the book of Genesis and you read the story of Joseph, you, he, you immediately go into Egypt and you find out what happens to Joseph. And it's, it's a fascinating, big, long story. In fact, it's the longest story in the Old Testament about any individual character. And, but then there's the story of what happens to Judah. And Judah just gets one chapter in the Bible, just one chapter, Genesis 38. But in this one chapter about Judah's life, we discover once again what a shady person he is. And this story literally goes from bad to Jerry Springer creepy in one chapter, okay? So here's what happened. Are you guys ready for some rated R Bible today? If you are, say amen. All right, some of you are excited for some rated R Bible today. I love my church. We got some jacked up people here, okay? And again, some of this stuff, I just want to caution you. Some of this stuff is so rated R that um, I'm not even going to put stuff on the screen. I'm just going to give you a summary. 
You can go home and you can read Genesis 38 for yourself because the district superintendent is here and I don't want to get fired today. So we're just, you're just going to get a summary, all right? So Joseph's gone and Judah decides to get on with his life. He's a shepherd. He eventually gets married, has a bunch of kids, and his first three kids are boys. His first son grows up, gets married to a woman named Tamar. Can you say Tamar? Okay. And then his second son gets married too, but his third son's still a little kid. He is not old enough to get married. He's still little. And the Bible says, and I wish I, wish I knew some more details on this, but the Bible says the older son did evil in the sight of God and died. And then it says the second son also did evil in the sight of God and died. Well, Judah's grieving, but he goes to Tamar, the, the, the first daughter-in-law, and according to the culture of the day, he is now responsible as the father-in-law for taking care of this woman financially that had been married to his eldest son. And, and so he says to her, look, Tamar, I'm going to take care of you, okay? I'm going to follow what I need to do. I'm going to take care of you. When my third son is old enough to be married, I'll marry him off to you. And then you'll be a part of the family. We'll take care of you. We'll protect you financially. But in the meantime, until he grows up, I just need you to wait as a heartbroken widow. I just need you to do that. I just need to grieve as a widow in waiting and just do that. Well, time goes by. Years go by. And once again, consistent with Judah's character, he forgets all about Tamar and his promise to her. And as years and years go by, she is all alone and she is forgotten. And as a widowed woman in that period of history, in that culture, she can't really provide for herself. And that makes her very, very, very vulnerable. And so finally, after years of waiting, she decides she needs to take matters into her own hands. And this is so creepy, but this was just, this was just the culture of 3,000 years ago, and you need to understand that. Tamar dresses up, and she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she covers her face, and she goes and she sits down by the city gate. Because Judah is a man of great importance in the town, and he and the other elders would gather by the gate, and they would make important judgments for the town. And apparently... He liked prostitutes, classy guy, Judah, okay? And so she goes to the gate and she waits. And we don't know how long it took, but apparently it was pretty quick because Judah comes by one day and he begins a conversation with her. And he doesn't even recognize that it's his own daughter-in-law, which tells you something, right? Which tells you that he has completely forgotten about her. He has forgotten his promise to her. He doesn't care, Okay. So anyway, he apparently likes what he sees, and he wants to hire her. And they talk, and they negotiate that the payment for her services would be a goat, which I guess was the going rate for that sort of thing. Who knew, right? Anyway, he didn't have a goat on him. So after their magical night, he says, look, baby, I will send you a goat. And she says, I bet you tell that to all the girls. No, 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 Judah. That's not going to fly. I need something in collateral right now until I get my goat. And I want two things. 
I want your ring. Now, his ring was very important. It was an emblem. It was something that he wore on his neck. It was something that he would use to make his mark and give his stamp onto something, like his legal signature. She said, I want your ring that's around your neck. And I also want your staff, which was a big deal because it represented his position and his importance in the community. Two very big things. But what could you do? He owes her a goat. He doesn't have it on him. She's about to make a big scene in public. So finally he says, okay, okay, here's my ring, here's my staff. Shh, shh, shh. Stay right here. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here. I'm going to run home. I'm going to have your goat back before you can blink. Don't lose my stuff. And he runs home. He, run, he like sprints. And he immediately finds his servant, and he has this really awkward conversation in the Bible with his servant. He says, hey, I met a prostitute, I owe her a goat. Don't really want to talk about it. Please don't tell my wife. But I need you to get a goat. I need you to find her. And I need you to get my ring and my staff back, like pronto. Can you do that? Is this a great Christmas story, by the way? Is this just wonderful? And this is where Matthew is leading us in the Christmas genealogy, the Christmas tree of Jesus, okay? So Judah's servant gets a goat and heads to the gate and starts looking for where this woman is supposed to be. But there's a problem. He can't find Julia Roberts anywhere. I mean, he looks around, he asks around, and all the people say, there is no prostitute around here who matches that description. Never seen her. So finally he gives up and he goes back to Judah with the goat and he says, sir, I can't find her anywhere. Now this is a little bit embarrassing. And the Bible tells us that Judah didn't want people to know that he had hired a prostitute and given her his ring and his staff because people would laugh at him. So he decides to just buy some new stuff and try to forget this whole thing ever even happened. Well, some time goes by, a few months go by. And one day somebody comes running up to Judah's house, knocks on the door. Judah, 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 are you there? You're not going to believe this. You are not going to believe it. Tamar, your ex-daughter-in-law, who's supposed to be in mourning about the death of your son, she's pregnant. And the phrase used in Scripture is, she has played the harlot. She was supposed to be a widow. She was supposed to be grieving your son, and she has dishonored you and your family. Well, oh my gosh. And then Judah does what so many people do who have secret sin in their lives. Judah gets real, real, real self-righteous. You know what Judah does? Judah says, my daughter-in-law has sinned against me, has sinned against God. She must be burned alive. Wait, wait. time out, Judah. Is this the same Judah who beat up his little brother and sold him into slavery? Is this the same Judah who broke his parents' heart with a cruel lie? Is this the same Judah who promised to take care of his daughter-in-law and broke his promise and forced her into a life of destitution and poverty? Is this the same Judah who committed adultery? Yep. But Judah's like, she must be killed. She has shamed me and my family. 
And so he gets the whole community riled up, itching to burn Tamar alive at the stake, Salem witch style. Like the neighborhood is going to have a bonfire party at Tamar's house. But of course, Tamar still has a couple things that belong to the baby's father, doesn't she? In fact, here's what scripture says. And it's very funny. This is why I tell you guys you should read your Bible. This is hysterical stuff, and it's in there. Tamar is about to be burned alive, and as the mob is coming to kill her, she sends a messenger out to find Judah. And here's what the messenger says as he runs up to Judah. He's got a staff in one hand, and he's got a ring hanging on a cord in the other hand. And he says, hey, Judah, Tamar wanted me to give you this message. I am with child by the man to whom these two things belong. I guess we should find him too and also burn him at the stake. Right, Judah? And Judah's like, okay, everybody, no bonfire today. Bonfire's canceled. Take your marshmallow, graham crackers, Hershey bars, head home. Calling the whole thing off. Why, Judah? Well, we should really show forgiveness and grace. Because you know nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. Hannah Montana taught me that. Let's all just go home and pretend this never happened. And then after the crowd leaves, he goes in to see Tamar, and he falls down onto his knees, and he says, Tamar, you are way more righteous than me because I didn't do what I said I was going to do. I didn't take care of you. And Tamar goes on to give birth to a little boy, and his name is Perez, and he is in the genealogy of Jesus, our Messiah. And as I read all that, I'm thinking, Matthew, you should have really skipped over that one. I mean, now we've got a kid written in history in the lineage of Jesus who should have never been born, who is the offspring of something Jerry Springer, Maury Povich-level creepy, okay? Matthew, why would you ever mention that? That's the kind of thing you bury. That's a story you never want to get out in public. Unless, unless, that was the point of Matthew's Christmas story. Well, the story's not over for Judah. Because about 20 years after he sold his brother into slavery, there's a famine in the land. And this is a part of the story that you guys might remember from Sunday school or from church. And so Jacob, the father, calls the sons together and he says, I need you to go to Egypt to buy some grain because we're, we're out of grain and we're in trouble. And so Judah and his brothers, they, they go to Egypt. And guess who's in charge of the grain, church? Do you remember? Joseph, that's right. He has now, you know, went through prison and all that. Now he's become the prime minister of Egypt. He went in as a slave, and now he's the prime minister. Great success story. Incredible story. Hopefully you've read it or you know about it. Now, Joseph has been in Egypt a long time. It's been about 20 years. And the last time Judah saw him, he was, he was a kid. He was a young teenager. And now, you know, he dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. You guys get it, okay? And so Judah didn't recognize him. But Joseph recognizes his brothers. And so he starts to mess with them. He sets them up. And he's trying to decide, 
Are they the same guys that beat me up and threw me in that well, or have they changed? And the Bible says there are some moments that Joseph is so overwhelmed by emotion as he's talking to them that he has to leave the throne room and he goes and he starts sobbing in another room and then composes himself and then comes back in again. And the brothers have no idea. They have no idea who this guy is or why this prime minister is taking so much interest in them. And they go back to see their father and they say something weird is going on. The prime minister wants us to bring our youngest brother, Benjamin, to Egypt. The father says, you can't, take, you can't take Ben. You can't take the youngest. The last time I sent the youngest out to you, I got a bloody robe back. That's not happening again. Judah says, Dad, I swear, we'll protect him, but they're not going to sell us any more grain, and we're all going to starve to death unless we can take little Benjamin. Eventually, Dad agrees, and so all the brothers, all 11, stand before Joseph. There's some other things that go on. But then eventually, they're in Pharaoh's throne room. And again, they don't know it's him. And finally, at the end of the story, Joseph says, I am Joseph, your brother. And this is one of the most dramatic scenes in the entire Old Testament. I am Joseph, your brother. And Judah falls flat on his face at the feet of Joseph. Notice, this is a pattern with Judah when he gets busted, right? He gets real spiritual. Judah's thinking, what would I do if the roles were reversed? What would I do to the man who sold me as a teenager into slavery? And Judah instantly knows what he would do. Burn him at the stake, right? Take out the s'mores. Because Judah knows his character, and he thinks he's dead. He is flat on the floor, face at the feet of Joseph, who now holds all the power over life and death over him. But then Joseph does something remarkable. Joseph says, get up, brother. I forgive you. In fact, go get the rest of the family, because I'm going to protect all of you. Later, Joseph would say, God used your evil to put me here for good, to save the lives of many. Joseph became a savior. And God looks down on that and says, I think I'm going to skip the savior and I'm going to go with the liar and the thief in the genealogy of my son. I'm going to bring my son into the world through Judah, not Joseph. And Matthew highlights this in the Christmas tree genealogy. Do you know why? Because on that day, when Judah was flat on his face, he was the picture of you, and he was the picture of me. He was the picture of a person who deserves one thing and got something else. And Matthew recognized that that was what Christmas was all about. The arrival of Jesus meant that God's grace was available to everyone and that God's grace was possible even to people who were shady and broken and sinful, even people who had rebelled against God, even people who had denied God existed, even people who had run away from God. Remember, Judah never broke. 
Judah never confessed. Judah never apologized up to that moment. And suddenly at the climax of this story, Joseph gives Judah the opposite of what he deserved. And God decided to skip over Joseph the righteous and chose Judah the unrighteous. And it was through Judah that he brought his son Jesus into the world. Now that's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, that's a Christmas miracle. But that's the point of Christmas. It's the point of the story of Jesus. See, your only hope and my only hope has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with what's been done for us. So as Matthew sets out to write his Christmas story, how does he begin? He says, before we get to the Jesus part, I want to remind you how it's always been in history, that God throughout history has chosen broken people. He's chosen messed up people. He's chosen people with a past and secrets and guilt and shame and sin, that those are the ones that God has often chosen, the most unlikely. And now because of Jesus, they all will have access to God. They all will have the opportunity for a standing with God, not based on what they have or haven't done, but based on what God has done for them, that he sent them a savior. Isn't that amazing? That's your story. That's my story. That's the point of Christmas. So here's our bottom line today. If you want to jot it down or just remember it, this is our bottom line, that God came into this world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. That God came into this world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. That, that it's not about what rules I've checked off to be good enough to earn favor with God. It's about what he has done for me, that he sent me the greatest gift. He sent me a savior. He sent me Jesus who is willing to pay for all my sins. And when that reshapes our worldview, when that reshapes our God view, how we look at God, how we see God, it will change us from the inside out. And it's the people who begin to approach God based on what God has given them that they don't deserve. Those are the people who find grace. They're the ones who find the grace to deal with their past and even forgive themselves. So as we close today and the worship team comes up, here's my question to you. Do you have a secret? Do you have a secret? Are you a person who would say, you know what? I don't know if I could ever have peace with God because I don't know how to fix my past. Maybe I've just been denying God. And I can't go back and undo things I've done or decisions I've made. Maybe I'm someone who's sitting here today and I just can't seem to forgive myself. Is that you? Because if that's you this morning, I've got incredible, incredible news for you. See, it's Christmas time. And Christmas is about understanding that God has sent his son into the world that God has leaned into you even though you've leaned away 
from him. That God is drawing near to you even though you've pulled away. That his grace is available to you. And it doesn't begin with, I've got to clean up my life first. I've got to get my act straight. It begins just as it did. Don't miss this. Just as it did 3,000 years ago when Judah looked up at his brother Joseph and somehow decided, I don't deserve it, but I'm going to accept this forgiveness and this grace. That's how relationships of grace and mercy and forgiveness always begin. So today, God says to those of you with the past, those of you who carry shame, he says, I'm inviting you to simply accept what I've done for you. And in time, I'll show you how to forgive yourself. But in the meantime, I don't want your sin to separate the two of us any longer because I set my son into the world to fix the problem of sin once and for all. And so Judah became the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus the Messiah. See, Christmas is God's way of underscoring that no one has access to the Father by his or her own goodness. That access to the Father is always given through grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And it is to that that we have all been invited. But that's not the end, because the genealogy goes on. But that'll be a story for next week. Can we pray together, church? Let's pray with heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this incredible ancient manuscript, this, this eyewitness testimony of Matthew. Matthew the sinner. Matthew the tax collector. Matthew who maybe looked at the lens of Jesus and God in a way so different from maybe a lot of the other disciples at the time. Matthew who decided not to, to start with a story as he was beginning his Christmas account, but he began with a genealogy. And he took the time to highlight the oddballs, the weirdos, the crazies, all the people in Jesus' family tree that historians would have hid. But he pointed them out to remind us who God is all about, who God loves, who God cares for. And if you've ever felt like an oddball or a weirdo or an outcast, if you're here this morning and you've ever felt like, man, I don't know if God could ever love me. I don't even know if God's real. But if he is, he probably wouldn't pick someone like me. I'm here to tell you today that the Christmas story reveals just the opposite, that he would pick someone just like you. He loves you and that he has an incredible plan for your life and your future. And he's not acting you to, asking you to change or clean up your act in this moment. He's asking you to simply be ready to meet him right where you are. And to say, God, I just want a relationship with you. Show me how to do that. Step by step, day by day, for the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me. I just want to love you. 
So I, I don't want to let another opportunity slip by. If you're here today, and maybe you've never looked at God like that before, and, and today is your day that you'd like to say, God, if that's truly who you are, if you're like that, and if you love me like that, and if you're ready to meet me right where I'm at, God, I want to follow you. If that's you today, would you just have five seconds of incredible boldness and say, that's a Christmas gift I need in my life. And would you just lift your hand right now and say, yeah, God, that's me. I need you. I need Jesus in my life. Praise God. Praise God. Is there anybody else? Because I believe this is the greatest decision anybody can ever make in their entire life. I remember when I made this decision as a freshman in high school and it changed my life forever. So I'll ask one more time. Is there anybody else here today who would say, I need that gift. I need Jesus in my life. Would you just be bold today and lift up a hand and say, that's me. I need it. Praise God. I see that. Praise God. I see another. Praise God. I want to pray. And, and right now, um, I'd like for you to pray along. If you just responded, may, maybe if you're watching at home and you're responding right now, God sees, he knows. I'd like for you to pray. And there's nothing magical at all about this prayer. It's just you communicating to your heavenly father who's ready to hear you anytime, anywhere about anything. That's how much he loves you. So would you just pray, dear heavenly father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for meeting me right where I am. God, I'm not perfect. I acknowledge that today. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus into this world for someone like me. And so today, I wanna, I wanna move my faith off of myself and what I've done or haven't done in my past what I've believed about you or haven't believed about you in my past. And today I want to move my faith. I want to transfer my faith onto Jesus, my Savior, my Lord. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose again. I believe he's the Son of God. God, I love you and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Show me how that looks like. Walk with me and help me to do that. Step by step, day by day, from now to eternity. I love you, God. Thanks for loving me. In your son's name, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, can we celebrate some decisions today? Praise God. Praise God. As the worship team leads us, let's stand together and let's continue to sing. If there's some things you need to pray about, these altars are always open. You're welcome to come forward and pray. Um, if you need someone to pray with you, you, know, you, can, you can grab myself, one of the other pastors, you can grab somebody around you. I'm sure there's people who would love to pray with you if you need someone to pray with you today.
One more reminder that if you are interested in being a part of the bell choir, it's going to be fantastic. Stay right in here after the service for that uh, practice. Let's close our, our eyes and bow our heads for a final word of prayer, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to our hearts this morning, Lord, and the great reminder of your amazing grace. How great is your grace, oh God, and we are so grateful. And I ask, God, that you would help us to walk gratefully throughout this week, despite the noise, despite the, the busyness, despite distractions. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. <laughs> Let us fix our hope, our joy upon you, reflecting what an awesome God we serve. And how great is your grace. Let us live as grace-filled people who extend grace to each one we come in contact with. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. God bless. See you Christmas Eve. Oh, come, oh, come.